Thanks for tuning in to the Custer Gallatin National Forest Podcast. This episode will explore ecology and forest planning with forest ecologist Gunnar Karnwath. All right. So why don't we start with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So my name is uh, Gunnar Karnwath. I was born in Pennsylvania, pretty much grew up in Alabama, went to college in Vermont, and then first moved out to Montana to go to graduate school. There I went to University of Montana and I got a degree in uh, master's of ecosystem management and then a uh, PhD in forestry at the Restoration Ecology Lab. Right before moving to Bozeman, I was working as an ecologist in the uh, in the Blue Mountains area of Northeast Oregon, um, and then I moved here to Bozeman um, to take this position as the forest ecologist on the planning team. A couple two and a half years ago. Okay, great. So, how long have you been with the Forest Service? Um, it's almost fifteen years now. You're located here in Bozeman, Montana, and you serve on the forest plan revision team as an ecologist. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So in a very kind of general way, could you define ecology for us? Sure. You know, a sort of more formal definition would be the, the study of living organisms and the way they interact with each other and the, and the physical environment. You know, e- ecologists tend to define ecosystems in 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 terms of several different characteristics. So we often talk about structure, composition, and function of ecosystems. So in using forested ecosystems as an example, the structure of a forested ecosystem would sort of be uh, its its physical makeup. So you can think of the the density uh, of the forest, uh, how much basal area or canopy cover there is in a a particular stand. The size of the trees would be a a sort of structural measurement of, of a forested ecosystem. The composition is is uh, usually talking about the the species composition. So, are we talking about a stand of pure ponderosa pine, or a mixed species stand with with lodgepole or spruce or subalpine fir in it? And then the function part of that is looking at the ecological processes within the ecosystem. So, these are the the processes that generally sort of renew or drive uh, the ecosystem. You know, fire is a good example of, of an ecological process. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the way, you know, in those general terms that we try to sort of describe and think about ecosystems. In the context of forest planning, how do you look at ecology and how does that fit? Well, yeah, I saw a lecture by Jack Ward Thomas once. He's one of our previous chiefs of, of the Forest Service. And, you know, he said something that you know stuck out to me, and he was probably paraphrasing someone else, but but he said, you know, forest ecology is is not only more complex than we think; it's more complex than we can think. And I totally see what he was saying. And so, trying to think about you know forest ecology and and how we bring that to bear on on forest planning, you know, the first thing we need to do is start to sort of simplify what it is that we're talking about. Right. So one, one of the ways that we do that is to sort of categorize what is, you know, in nature, actually a, a continuum of conditions. Uh, so one example of that is the identification of what we call potential vegetation types um, or PVTs. And so what, what that is, is a grouping or a classification of similar biophysical areas. So sim- areas with similar 
soils aspect, for example. And, and so these are areas that are going to tend to have similar vegetation communities and develop along similar sort of successional trajectories over time without disturbance. So that's sort of what we use as the, the game board, if you will, to, to think about you know, the ecology of the forest. And so we might have you know, groupings of, of these PVTs and you know, in, the, in the forest plan, for example, we, we group them into these very broad groups that we just call for simplicity's sake, a sort of a warm, dry PVT, a cool, moist PVT, and a cold PVT. So that's sort of you know, one of the most uh, important and fundamental ways of stratifying the environment to start to, to think about the ecology. Um, and then you know, an, another way we can we can break up the environment is by geographic areas. Uh, so even within a PVT, there might be uh, geographic areas that are just significantly different enough from each other that they're worth sort of thinking about independently. And so one example of that on the on the Custer Gallatin is dividing the the warm, dry uh, PVT p- potential vegetation type from the east side of the forest to the more montane west side. So on the east side, it's, it's really sort of a different animal uh, in, the, in, that, um, in that potential vegetation type. It's pure ponderosa pine, these sort of islands of, of ponderosa pine that you know, are compositionally and functionally sort of pretty different than, than the montane side, where it's a, more of a mix of, of Douglas fir. You know, once we sort of have these, these broad potential vegetation types, and you know, thinking about like what I was talking before, the elements of an ecosystem, the, the structure, the composition, the function, you know, we can start to think about um, what we're calling the ecological integrity of the forest or the ecosystems on the forest. And so one of the main ways that we, we approach that is by thinking about uh, what's called the natural range of variability. And, and basically what, what that is, is a sort of an analysis or, or a sort of an encapsulation of, of historic conditions or, or, or you know, ecological conditions that would have occurred sort of without disruption of, of disturbance regimes. So a lot of people you know, think about it as sort of a pre-European range of conditions. And, and the reason we're, we're interested in that is, is not because necessarily we want to sort of go back into time into this, you know, pristine uh, landscape. But what we, what we know is that, you know, those conditions under that, uh, under those disturbance regimes uh, was sort of a, a, a self-regulating and, and balanced, if you will, system to which the biota of the forest have adapted. By looking at sort of what that range of condition was in that natural range of variability and comparing that to the current conditions in terms of you know, structure, uh, function, processes, again, we can sort of start to assess the uh, ecological integrity of, of, the, of the forest as a whole. And, that, and that's sort of the way we start to you know, uh, approach this you know, pretty complex problem. Okay. So what is the overall ecological status of the Custer Gallatin National Forest? Well, it's, uh, it really depends on what area you're talking about. Every, every area sort of is unique and has its own suite of um, ecological conditions and, and restoration challenges and, and opportunities. And you know, one, one thing I'd like to think about a little bit is you know, there's, there's probably roughly about two-thirds of the Custer-Gallatin uh, National Forest that is in some sort of um, you know, protected designation, for example, wilderness or, or roadless area. Or something like that, and, and a lot of times people think of these areas as, uh, you know, ecologically, you know, pristine and, and intact. But you know, it, those areas as well have a lot of, of challenges, and um, 
So, you know, there's, there's some sort of issues that are pervasive across all lands. So we think about something like invasive species or uh, climate change or fire suppression. All, these are all things that have pretty much affected all lands uh, across the forest. And, you know, one good example of that is the, uh, the whitebark pine ecosystem, um, which has dramatically declined over the last few decades, largely due to uh, white pine blister rust uh, and an exotic disease, coupled with effects from, from climate change and interacting effects with, with disturbance agents like, like mountain pine beetle. Uh, so even these ecosystems that are, you know, sort of at the top of the mountains that tend to be protected by a wilderness, uh, they, they also, you know, they have a, a suite of, of uh, restoration challenges that we're facing. Other areas more like, like in the warm, dry potential vegetation type. So these are, you can think of sort of the other end, the bottom of the mountains. You know, those, those areas are also um, facing some you know, a host of, of threats um, and challenges. You know, the, the ponderous pine ecosystems of, of the east side of the forest out on the um, Ashland Ranger District, for example, uh, they've been experiencing lately some, some very large um, stand replacing fires that are uh, pretty uncharacteristic for, for that ecosystem. Um, you know, those, those systems were, were generally very high frequency uh, low intensity fires that would sort of uh, move through the landscape um, every couple few years um, and, and maintain a very sort of low density uh, forest with a, with a scattering of, of individuals and groups of trees across the landscape uh, with a lot of large trees, very fire resistant trees uh, in that mix. Um, and, you know, over, um, over the decades, we have you know, suppress fire, and we have allowed for a um, densification of, of those forests. Um, and we've and we've also done you know a lot of high grade um, uh, forest management out there. You know, particularly um, you know about a hundred years ago when when railroads were built into this area, they um, you know they they tended to look for those those large ponderous pine trees that were pretty easy to access, and and they got um, harvested pretty heavily. Uh, so you know, we have this sort of legacy of, of management to deal with it, that today is resulting in a, in a sort of less than resilient system out in those areas. So we're getting these fires coming through that are having very different ecological effects than they would have uh, historically. Uh, and then in the, in the sort of in the middle part of the mountain, the, you know, that generally speaking, that cool moist potential vegetation type, um, you know, here again, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, let's let's take you know fire suppression again as an example. We we have very different patch configurations than than we did historically. So, in other words, this, you know these areas used to burn with a lot of mixed severity fires that would create areas of, of really dense forest, areas of of uh, you know regenerating forests, um, and and sort of everything in between. And, and it was this real uh, sort of heterogeneous mix of forest types across the landscape. And so when, when fires would, would burn in that area, they would sort of, uh, you know, burn in a, in a patchy manner and is sort of this self-reinforcing system and, uh, you know, creating a uh, sort of mosaic um, patches out on the landscape. And, you know, th since we have been suppressing fires now uh, for, you know, 100 years, 100 plus years, we are seeing the, the effects of that, and you know, particularly in, the, in those productive areas like these cool, moist areas, uh, what we're seeing is sort of larger, more contiguous patches 
uh, of forest. Our case in particular, we have sort of a, a lot more of this sort of medium-sized tree, large patches than, than we, than we um, would have expected under that natural range of variability. And so what that's doing is sort of setting up that, that system for uh, uncharacteristic consequences from you know, fire, which will uh, come in the future. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a concern in that, in that cool, moist area. So what do you hope people will better understand about ecological integrity as a part of this draft plan and its analysis? Well, I, I guess you know, ecological in- integrity is really sort of the most fundamental overarching concept of the plan. You can sort of think about it as, as protecting the goose that lays the golden egg. Um, and, and really, it is the driving um, concept behind the, behind the forest plan. And I think that's, that's really important for people to understand. It's, it's um, pretty different than the way you know, we used to think about forest management in terms of managing constituent parts or sort of m- maybe looking at timber volume, for example, as, as something to be maximized. You know, the, the way we're looking at this um, current forest plan and thinking about things like like timber volume in relationship to it is is we're, we're starting off with you know what are those conditions that are going to be uh, sustainable and resilient into the future and then we're looking at you know w- within that you know within that sort of realm of, of ecological integrity what sort of timber volumes are maybe possible or what are the sort of you know recreation recreational disturbances that we could layer on top of that without compromising that that ecological integrity. Uh, so, you know, thinking about this is, is really, you know, working towards ecological integrity is really the, the sort of the fundamental goal of, of the plan. You know, to get there, I think it's important that people understand this, this sort of general approach that we're taking. It's, it's known as sort of a coarse filter, fine filter approach to biodiversity conservation. So that coarse filter component is sort of what I was talking about earlier with thinking about the natural range of variability, what is that sort of envelope of conditions on the landscape that, that the biota sort of evolved with and adapted to, um, and, and developing desired conditions that, that reflect those conditions with the sort of fundamental assumption being that if we, if we provide those conditions, uh, then we'll provide, be providing for the vast majority of, of species in the planning area. Uh, again, because with the assumption that that's, those are the conditions that, that, um, that things have adapted to. Um, on top of that, we also have you know, a number of what we're calling fine filter elements. And these are, are plant components that um, you know, address elements of the biodiversity that uh, are maybe not habitat limited, but are limited by uh, some other factor. So maybe uh, like an invasive species or disease or disturbance from humans, for example. So you know, species like uh, grizzly bears um, or... Uh, sage grouse, for example, um, you know, may come to mind. And for those particular species, you know, we are developing on top of that coarse filter element, uh, what, we're, what we're calling fine filter conservation elements or plant components uh, that, that really sort of address the, the more proximate conservation concern of, of those particular species or elements of, of biodiversity. And then I, I guess I, you know, it would also help or hope that people understand, you know, in, in managing for ecological integrity um, and trying to develop a plan that, that works towards ecological integrity, there's enormous amount of uncertainty uh, that we, we contend with, you know, particularly in an era of, of climate change 
where a lot of the, the ecological processes that, that really drive the systems are, are changing underneath our feet. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of you know, what the extent and magnitude uh, locations of these of these uh, shifts and disturbances are, are going to be. So you know we are are doing our best to sort of you know plan for and manage for ecological integrity under that uncertain future. But there's a lot of uncertainty and plan. Um, you know I want people to understand is not something that's um, you know etched in stone to be uh, right and true for forever or for the next you know 15, 30 years even. It should be an um, adaptive document that, you know, continually sort of is reappraised, looked at, you know, with as new science, new information becomes available, a better understanding of, of you know, what ecological integrity is, um, how we manage towards that, how uh, climate change is manifesting itself um, across the environment. And, you know, as that information and, and knowledge comes in, we can, um, you know, adapt our plan to sort of better suit, better address those, those stresses and, you know, hopefully keep moving towards that um, envelope of conditions that, that is you know, resilient. What kind of information um, do you think that the public can provide during the upcoming comment period that would add value or support the decision? I'm always looking for things that I might have um, overlooked or was unaware of. So, you know, for example, there, there might be an opportunity for more of those fine filter plant components to protect a particular population of a species that, that I wasn't aware of. Or there might be some new information, uh, you know, uh, either new science or new or monitoring information out there that's unpublished that would help us better understand that affected environment. You know, any information like that is, is always extremely useful. And, you know, of course, I, it's also just really useful sort of back to that concept of you know providing that you know basically what it is that society wants with our public lands which i i generally feel is is you know our charge you know basically people articulating what that is 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 very helpful so you know what is it that that you want from your public lands what is that greatest good if you will and why and does um you know if if the alternatives put forth do not you know, address that particular concern, you know, understanding why that's the case and, and why your concern, you know, how your concern could be addressed is extremely, extremely helpful. And, you know, again, sort of helping move, you know, in this sort of constantly redefining dynamic nature of Forest Service mission itself. So that's, you know, any any information about, you know, what, what the public desires and, and how we can sort of um, move towards that or how we're missing the mark on that is, is extremely helpful. Well, thank you, Gunnar, for taking the time to break that down for us today. And for more information, you can visit the Custer Gallatin National Forest website at www.fs.usda.gov backslash Custer Gallatin, and click on the front and center forest plan revision header. The public comment period for the DEIS lasts until June 6th, 2019. Up next, we talk about fire management and forest planning. 